0: good morning church good morning. good morning to all of you in Lancaster and for sure all of you at our Myerstown campus as well now uh, for me this is one of the f- my most favorite things is that a great sentence not sure that it is one of my favorite things is to say this next sentence please Turn in your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus. Exodus chapter 12 is where we'll be today. Exodus chapters 11 and 12 is our primary text. Listen to that wonderful sound. Are you participating in that sound? Or do you have one of those electronic devices that makes no noise at all? If you would just kind of, maybe as you open your app, you would just kind of do a... You wouldn't want to be left out of that wonderful chorus. All right, let me pray. Father, your grace, oh, how we need it. Father, now more than ever, as we come to your word, uh, we need your strength, we need your Holy Spirit who promises uh, to teach, to illuminate, and to guide. Father, I have no strength in and of myself uh, to communicate these words effectively, but Lord, we would pray, and I would ask today that you would uh, use this broken vessel to communicate timeless, eternal truths that can transform our hearts. Please, God, what's written in this book is your word. It is powerful and it is sharp. Would you penetrate our hearts today? God, we're asking, uh, we're pleading, but we believe that this is a prayer that you do answer. And so, God, please, do your work, have your way. In this place, we pray in Jesus' name and all of Mission Church said, Amen. amen. Amen." well, you know how it starts. It starts like this, week six. That's different from last week's introduction when I said it starts this way, week five, all right? Week six, we're in our series called Courageous Calling, we're studying, we're following along chapter by chapter, verse by verse, studying the life of Moses. Moses was given a courageous calling, and he was given strength from God to be able to respond to that calling. It was no strength in and of himself, but it was a strength that he finds in God. So our subtitle for the series is this, Finding Strength in God by way of review, and to catch those of you up who are new guests this morning, uh, we've defined it this way, we've said this, and we've accepted this statement as true, and that is God calls every person. God has called you in one of three ways, or in all three of these ways, and the first call that he provides uh, to the earth, to the world, is his general call of grace, which is this, repent. He calls you. It's this general call of obedience to the entire earth. The law of God is written on the conscience of men. Count that as your call. Then this, the call of salvation. It's God's specific call. It's a call that you can't say no to. And His Holy Spirit presses upon you heart, your knee bends, you bow before the Lord, and your life is radically and drastically changed. Oh, that you would experience that call. When you hear God's general call, when you answer His specific call, then you would know this as well, that God has a specific purpose for your life. We believe that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and other texts talk about how your actual place in life will ultimately result in you fulfilling God's purposes wherever you are. And so as we come to today's text, one of the thoughts that I want us to consider is this. Uh, The key to remaining faithful to God's call is not only, not only remembering the work that you are called to, but it's remembering, if you will, also the work of the one who actually called you. Maybe now will be a good time for participation. Uh, Who called you? Say Jesus. Jesus. So it's remembering the work of Jesus Christ. That's what gives us the strength to respond to God's call remember not only what he's called us to, but the one who has called us. Key word today being remember. Say remember. 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 Which leads us to this question to contemplate today, and that is, what is, what would you account among your uh, strongest, um, maybe most loudest, most clear Memories. What would you count amongst your top three memories in life? you have a couple? Do you have one that stands above them all? I mean, think about the things that you remember. When I say, hey, what do you remember? What are you remembering? Major events come to our minds, do they not? People ask things like, where were you when? Where were you when um, we landed on the moon? Where were you when? Yes, we weren't even a thought, were we? Some of us. The Lord knew. Where were you when? Where, where were you when? Maybe, maybe a major election comes to mind. Um, maybe, maybe where were you when um, some kind of tragedy of some kind comes to your mind. Maybe, maybe if you're like me, uh, you might remember where you were uh, when your favorite team was the first team to win six Super Bowls. Major event branded, branded in my mind. Some of you among us are especially privileged like me to have that be your favorite team. Others of you came along after the fact. Good for your team. Thank you. Tragic events, major tragic amongst the generations. Some may remember where they were on the day of Pearl Harbor. We've seen it on the news so many times, year after year, year after year. Uh, There stands the memorial off the coast of the island. I can remember vividly where I was. I believe, I believe, I believe it was in 1986 uh, when the Challenger exploded in the sky. Now we're getting some head shaking. First teacher to enter outer space. And so all of the classrooms of the world, if you will, at least throughout the United States, were tuned in to watch this. Where were you when? First grade, Mrs. Coon's class. Where were you in 9 11? Where were you? Personal events come to your mind, perhaps, and wedding days, the birth of children, graduations, where these are the times. And these are, we think of, and what's branded in our mind are these life altering events. And I've had some life altering events, and I would relive my wedding day every day if I possibly could. I would relive uh, the birth of my children, except that I love where they are in their stages now. My wife said that loud, more loud at home. Amen. For me, the, the strongest, the predominant memory that comes to my mind is indeed um, a tragic event for me, but a life-altering, life-changing event, and that was the death of my grandfather. Some of you may have heard me speak of this before, but I would, I would say this. Uh, he was my spiritual father. Uh, he was indeed my second father. He was a country neighbor. He was indeed a man that I saw every day of my life. He was a man who got me off to school in the morning, got me onto the bus. He was the man who took me to church every single Sunday. The day that he died was the day that everything changed. But as I look back upon this tragedy of that moment as it was in my, in my life, I, I realize now today that his death actually gave way to providing clarity for me. That the loss of his life actually helped me to find direction in mine. The grief, the grief of my heart actually led me toward clarity and the goal for which the Lord has called me to today. His leaving had actually led to my beginning to lead. For at the age of 16, by God's grace, by His providence, I had just turned 16. And so quickly, I was able to get my driver's license so that I could take myself, my sister, my two limited uncles, and my grandmother to church each Sunday. God knows these are life altering events. The challenge of it all, the challenge of it all opened my eyes to a calling. I remember the day like it was yesterday, like I had said, I just literally had turned 16 years old. It happened the day after Memorial Day. How ironic is that? Remember. Not a Memorial Day goes by that I, that I don't remember the day that, the events that happened on the day before you see, I remember the day because I lived it. I remember the day because I remember the event because I was there. I found him laying outside of our garage, out of his garage. My face touched his. I said, I struggled to administer CPR. I remember because I was there I remember because I saw I remember because I touched I remember because I smelt I remember because I heard I'll never forget but if I want my children to know of this event that's where a memorial comes in You see, if you come into my office, you'll find a flag folded. You'll find a flag folded, and you'll find it encased, and you'll find inside of that case a picture of my grandfather and I. Why is it there? Why is it there? Why is it displayed in my office? Because I I love for people to ask, whose flag is that? I love for people to ask, who is that Um, in the picture? And I love being able to say it's my, it's my grandfather and I, and I love being able to, to tell the story. And if I want my children to know of that story, not of the story of his passing, but the story of his life, that's where a memorial comes in. Lest we forget, if you want something to be passed on from one generation to the next... God has called us over and over and over and over again to memorialize that which is precious, that which is true, that which we long to pass on to the generations to come next. I want you to think about in the Scriptures that which God calls us to remember this morning. And in this process of remembering, consider how God has given us object. God has actually given us process for how we are to remember. Think about the memorials that God has in his scriptures. None of us were there, but yet we remember. If it were to rain this afternoon and the sun were to shine through the water droplets as they fall from the sky, we would see a memorial. Memorial. We would see a rainbow in the sky, and we'd be rem- we would be reminded of this. God will never again, what? Destroy the earth in a flood. Genesis nine twelve through 13, God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all the future generations. That's us. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. If you walk past the pile of stones, you might be reminded of that which happened in, in the book of Joshua. When they crossed over the Jordan, each of the elders were to grab a stone, and, and here and the Lord said, when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you, then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel as a memorial forever. Oh, friends, just a couple of weeks ago, again, another memorial. As we pass the cup, as we pass the bread, we memorialize, we remember, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes at the table of the Lord. Why the Lord's Supper? Why communion? Because Jesus said this, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance, in memorial of me. In the same way also then, right, he took the cup. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as you drink it in memorial, in remembrance of me. As often as you drink, eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim, you remember, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so today as we come to the text of Exodus chapter 11, we come to one of the most predominant memorials in all of the scripture. As a matter of fact, the memorial that I just spoke of, communion, the memorial I just spoke of of breaking bread and taking cup, the Lord was actually engaged in that memorial and the memorial that we're going to study today, that was the memorial he was engaged in. Anyone know what it is? You know what today's memorial is? Come on, tell me, tell me. Passover. Say Passover. Passover. All right, now you got it. Passover. Passover. Exodus 12, 14, we read this. The day shall be for you. This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. You see, today, as we come to this memorial, here's what we're going to find. We're going to find a holy God who at the first Passover was able to fulfill his righteous obligation to punish sin and to punish the obstinate while also at the same time simultaneously extending grace and mercy upon the repentant. Once again we come and see a holy God with all of his attributes in perfect display. Today we come to plague number 10. The plague of death. A plague that, if we're honest with ourselves, we actually have a really difficult time understanding. Here, our perfect God pours out His judgment and wrath on sin. And we know who the sinners are in the story, right? We know where the sinners are in the story. You've been following along. Who are the sinners in the story? For, for cl- as clear as day can be, who are the sinners? Tell me, say Egypt. Like we know that Egypt would stand as those who are obstinate against the Lord. But I want you to stop and consider today as we enter this text that Israel is no less sinful than Egypt. Think of their whining. Think of their griping. Think of their complaining. Think of their obstinance before the Lord. How is it that a just God is going to punish sin but not punish all the sin that he, as He passes through? How's He going to do it? How's he going to be able to stay true to himself and being completely just and punishing sin and having that rightful punishment find its place on every sin that it was intended to punish? How's he going to be able to pass over and not punish sin? How's it going to happen? We'll find today that he's fully just. We'll find today that he does actually punish all of the sin. How does he do it, though, that people might still live? How does he do it? It's this theological term called propitiation. you got to repeat that one, right? Come on, say propitiation. Propitiation. Now say it again, because it's hard. Say it again. Yeah, because you don't use that word every day, do you? You probably should use that word on a regular basis. You know, when you break mom's perfect plate, we know what propitiation is? Replacing the plate. And then asking, Mom, what else can I do in propitiation to appease, to satisfy, maybe this isn't true of your mom, but the wrath, right, the judgment, the punishment that is about to come our way. That's propitiation. You see, propitiation is the means, it's the act that is made, the sacrifice that is given, if you will, that would satisfy the judgment, that would satisfy the wrath of the one who's been offended. We think of this as a religious term, but even as a general term, here's what propitiation means. An act meant to gain or regain favor. It's an act to gain or, or regain favor. Biblically speaking, there's two parts to propitiation. Part number one is the act of appeasing the wrath or judgment of the offended. And this would be true in all propitiation for that matter. It's the act of appeasing the wrath or judgment of the offended person. But secondly, it would also be in the pursuit of being reconciled to that one. Propitiation is not just to get one off of your back, but propitiation is to win and gain favor and to become reconciled to that very one whom you had offended. Biblically speaking, you can write this down. Please have your thinking caps on today. We're going theology deep. You all right with that? You all right? We all right? If we go 301 on this, say yes. yes. All right, some of you are. The rest of you, you'll stay caught up, I'm sure. Biblically speaking, propitiation is the act of satisfying the wrath and justice of a holy God. Propitiation is the act of satisfying the wrath and justice of a holy God. And so here we see the justice and wrath of a legitimately offended God. Who's going to pass through and extend his justice and his judgment upon sin throughout the land of Egypt. Yet even as God does that, he meets with Moses and he says to Moses and he provides to Moses a means a means through which he, can, he and the nation and anyone who longs to be obedient to the Lord to receive propitiation, he tells them how, in this instance, God will be propitiated. How he will be satisfied. How he will be able to pass over the sins. If they were willing to do as the Lord commanded in this instance... God would be willing then to pass over those who would rely on this promise as a means of their saving. Got it? Got it? Here we go. Propitiation, without propitiation, without the act of propitiation, there would be no Moses story. Without God being willing to receive propitiation, there would be no nation of Israel. Without propitiation, there would be no exodus. Without propitiation, there would be no promised land. Without propitiation, there would indeed be no salvation. Without propitiation, indeed, the line of the Messiah's coming would have been ripped apart. Without propitiation, the nation would have perished. And the same is true of us today in Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ himself is our propitiation. And whether the nation then knew it or not, he he was their propitiation as well. For a Savior would come. 1 John four ten says this: In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so today we find strength in the, in the propitiation of Christ. Without Christ's death, there is no propitiation. Without propitiation, we have no call of salvation. Without the call of salvation, we can't answer the call of obedience. And without being able to answer the call of obedience, we can't fulfill God's life calling. So, in in a way, it all hangs in the balance of this text. This, indeed, everything that follows after in the Scriptures finds its crux, in a way, in the story we're about to study today. The Passover. Jesus Christ. Propitiation in our place. And so, if you're ready to find strength in God's propitiation, say this. Say, I want to remember. Are you ready? I want to remember too. So, here's where we've been. Story of Moses. Nation of Israel under oppression in the land of Egypt. Captives, if you will, slaves. They went from 70 people to hundreds of thousands of people. Pharaoh wasn't happy. And so, he begins to oppress them. And then he sends this verdict, ironically. This edict throughout the land. All male children shall be put to death. (laughs) Moses' parents of faith, you remember the story weave the basket, place him in the Nile, save his life. Along comes Pharaoh's daughter, finds him, adopts him, raises him with all of the blessings, if you will, of being within a religious, uh, within a um, sovereign home. lives a life, takes advantage of all of that, makes a midlife crisis, um, debacle, murders a man, gets run out of town, lands in Midian, takes a wife, has two sons. God calls him through a burning bush to go back and let the captives come free. He comes up with all the excuses. God takes away all the excuses. Remember, Having taken away all of the excuses, Moses then goes back. He talks to the leaders. Therein, he goes before Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, God says this, let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say? Come on, tell me what Pharaoh says. Say, psh, 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 psh." No. And so he says, fine. Now, go back 10 more times. And last week we looked nine times, psh, nine times, psh, nine times, psh. psh. I'm going to stop it. So much fun. But not when you understand what's happening. I don't mean to make light, but I do want us to consider how frivolous and how lost was Pharaoh's mind to again, whoa, again. And so after the Nile turning to blood, the frogs taking over the land, the gnats, the flies, the cattle dying, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the utter darkness, each of them for the purpose of, sa- of showing that Yahweh is preeminent over the Egyptian gods. Now comes God's strongest judgment, yet most merciful act of all. Here we are. That's the context. That's where we come to. Exodus chapter 11. Look at it with me. Primary text today is chapter 12, so let 11 stand as the context. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he, listen, he will let you go this time. Bank on it. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Like, he's not going to let you go. Like He's going like, to help you out the door. Speak now in hearing of the people that they ask. Every man of his neighbor and every woman of his neighbor and every silver and gold jewelry. What he's saying is this. Not only are they going to kick you out the door, they're going to give you gifts as you go. They're gonna be blessed in your departure. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, verse 3. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. Apparently, uh, being the the messenger to deliver of the edict of nine plagues, get get you a little notoriety. He's known in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, about midnight. I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. I'm going to show no partiality in this. From the strongest to the weakest to the richest to the poor, sin is sin, and I must, I must... Verse 6, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But listen, Moses, not even a dog shall growl against you and my people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. I thought you weren't going to show any partiality. Oh, but there will be distinction And all of these servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all of the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Moses goes out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Why? I believe with all of my heart because it didn't have to be this way. He could have responded. From Moses' perspective, and the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you when you go and present this to him. He will in the end, but he won't initially again. That my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. They'll know who I am. They'll know that I am. And so verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So now comes chapter 12. And the tone, if you will, or kind of the focus, if you will, shifts a bit. We go from the actual action itself, and what the Lord is going to say to Moses is this what I'm about to do is a crucial work. What I'm about to do is a huge deal. And what I need you to do, Moses, when this happens, I need you to memorialize it so the people never forget. And so Moses is going to find strength in propitiation, and he's going to pass that strength on to future generations, including us. And so today we find our strength in propitiation, and we do so in three ways. Here's the first one. We find our strength in God's propitiation by remembering the strong demands of a holy God. By remembering the strong demands of a holy God. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall, and then he goes on from there. What I want you to see is this. How big of a deal is this event? How big? How big of a deal is this? This event is so huge that we're actually going to reorient their calendar to it. Like from this day forward, when this happens, it will be day number one of a new year. And what I want you to catch in this, friends, is this. The day the Lord saved Israel was marked by a new beginning. The day the Lord saved Israel, it was a new beginning. It was the start of something brand new, symbolized here by the reorienting of every event to ever follow And the land of Egypt will be marked And count it off of this particular day. You see, the Lord saving you is a a moment that we ought to commemorate. It's a it's a day that we ought to remember. It was a day that Israel remembered. Israel marked the day that they were saved. Have you? Have you experienced a new beginning? Has your life started over? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. If you haven't done so before, I want you to count a day for yourself that is your day of salvation. Like mark that day. Celebrate that day. Remember that day, what the Lord did for you. The day that He transformed your life, the day that He turned you around, the day that you were going one way, moving towards death, stepping into His wrath and judgment, and the day that He ultimately passed over your sins through the sacrifice of somebody else. Have you marked that day? We gotta remember that day. Remember the day that you were challenged. And maybe that could be your day. How precious would this be if you marked this day for your children? The day that your children bent their knee to your Savior. Perhaps it's your baptism day. That wasn't the day of salvation, but that was the day you proclaimed it. Maybe you would remember that. Maybe you memorialized it in some way, shape, or form. But the point is this. Being saved is reason to celebrate. Amen? Being saved, having your life transformed is the day you begin to count your life over again. How many days? How many days? How many days has it been for you? I think of those who've been freed from a substance, and I love having this conversation with them when they say, it has been X number of days that I have been freed, that I have been cleaned, that I have been released from the grip of said substance. Do you know the days? Have you counted them? Have you numbered the days that you've been free from the grip of sin in your life? Oh. That's, that's a count worth making. This is the grace of God. If you haven't done so before, do it. Do it today. Do it with your children. Now, watch verses 3 through 6. Uh, God moves in now to his strong demands. He's holy. People are sinful. He's going to render judgment and he can't show partiality. What's he going to do? Tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's house a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to that, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Not an ounce of the lamb or the sacrifice will be wasted. Get it? Verse five, and your lamb shall be without blemish perfect, spotless, without blemish a male, a year old you think God is um, in His holiness has some specificity about Him you may take it from the sheep or from the goats how gracious of the Lord and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month pick it out on this day but then a few days later here's what's going to happen When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, they will come together and they shall kill and make sacrifice of their lambs at twilight, which means from dust till dark. As you complete your biblical theology, that timing will become increasingly interesting when you think about the sacrifice of the Lord. The most noticeable demand in this particular passage is this. The noticeable demand is this, that a holy God requires a perfect sacrifice for sin. Have you heard that before? A holy God requires a perfect sacrifice. A spotless lamb, a perfect lamb. Do you remember how Jesus was introduced by John the Baptist to the masses? John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why could John say that? Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18. Knowing this, that you were ransomed from the futile ways of your past, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but you were ransomed and redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like a lamb without blemish or thaw Spot. Are you seeing it? Everything in this passage, everything in the Passover is pointing to Jesus. Everything we study, everything we learn today, it's all pointing to the precious spotless lamb. Have you ever wondered why the cross? Why the death? Why the blood? Today's your answer. Verse 7, the Lord continues with his instruction. Then they shall take some of the blood from the spotless, precious, perfect lamb and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat of the flesh that night, roast it on a fire. They're going to have a feast. They're going to have a meal. It's going to be a commemoration, if you will. They're going to eat it with unleavened bread. Why? Because yeast has symbolic value throughout the Scriptures for sure about sin, but practically this, you're not going to have time for it to rise. You're going to leave in haste. And so that unleavened bread reminds you of the pace through which the Lord saved you. And now eat of the bitter herbs reminding you of the oppression you once sat under. And they shall eat it. But now watch, do not, eat, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall, you shall let none of it remain until morning. And anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. In this matter, you shall eat it. How shall you eat it with your belt fastened, ready to go, with sandals on your feet, ready to step, with your staff in your hand, ready to serve, and you shall eat it in in what's the word in your Bible? What does it say in what? Haste and hurry. In a hurry, in a haste. Blood, the shedding of blood. Over the doorpost. Why, verse twelve? For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all on the go- and all. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Why the blood? The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land. Why blood? The author of Hebrews tells us why blood. Indeed, Hebrews 9.22, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so I want to pause here and acknowledge this, that um, many of us kind of even struggle with the thought of blood. How many of you get a little queasy at the sight of blood? You don't have to raise your hand, but, right? Blood. Blood. I mean, we're in October. Like coming up soon is a holiday where it seems like people celebrate blood and it kind of, kind of is this picture of something like death and horror and destruction. What is it? Why why blood? Well, indeed, when blood is shed, it does, it does provide us the picture of death. But I want you to consider this. For the one who needs a transfusion for the one who needs blood shed on their behalf, for the one who would die without blood being given, without blood being donated, if you will. The the sight of blood all of a sudden becomes a picture of life. And until you've been in that spot, it may be a little bit difficult to capture this reality, but for us, but for us, for my wife and I, this is something that we can get our heads around a bit. I would invite you to consider with us and maybe relive this moment in our lives when Our son at eight weeks old um, went into the hospital and had open-heart surgery. I know how real it is for me to remember handing him over to the nurse who took him away to let another man take a sharp instrument and press it upon his chest. and then them giving us the update that of how much blood was required by way of transfusion to preserve his life. Indeed, I actually remember signing the papers that, right, because you've got to give permission for such things to occur. Blood is life. Blood is life. Blood is life. For of all of us, is what is required to appease a holy God, then certainly it would make sense that all of us, the very life flow within us, blood itself, would be that which is required to appease a holy God. You get it? Blood is life. Blood is life. And so if the wages of sin is death, of course it's blood. For, lo- for blood is, blood is life. And the reason why for some of us blood is regarded as death is because we know when blood is in us, it's life. And so, oh, how we begin to contemplate this, this transfusion of blood, if you will, from the Savior onto us. Oh, the sprinkling of blood over the doorpost. Oh, the sprinkling of Christ's blood over us. And here we see Here we see how the wages of sin being death, but the very gift of God being eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How does it happen? Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, let me say it again, everything is purified with blood. And it's through the shedding of blood. It's through the shedding of perfect life. That's why there had to be a perfect sacrifice comes the propitiation of sin. So here we see God being completely just. Here we see God being completely just. The judgment of death was applied to all sin. The justice of God in this instance, follow me, let me speak slowly and deliberately. The justice and the penalty of death was applied over all sin in this instance, but for those who followed the lord's demand, he received the blood of the spotless lamb as a means of propitiation rather than the people 's blood in this instance, he said, "I am going to regard this perfect sacrifice, if you will, that is going to stand symbolically in this day as the perfect sacrifice that will come one day was that was that lamb was that lamb actually so precious?" That lamb was the symbol. That lamb was regarded as the principle. That lamb was the picture of the lamb. And so the deficit that was being collected in sin but covered by this temporal blood will be completely fulfilled in the eternal blood that was shed. You see it? This is how it works. This is propitiation. This is how Passover was possible. And if your head is beginning to explode... Mine did about Tuesday afternoon. It's now a memorial on my wall to get your head around this. Friends, what I want you to see is another day is coming when the Lord is going to render judgment over sin. Another day is coming when God is going to render judgment over sin. And the standard for propitiation, the standard for appeasement, the standard for satisfying the wrath of God has not changed. It's still death. And so, for those who stand obstinate, blood will be shed. But for those who repent and receive the blood that has already been shed, God will indeed pass over again. But here's the beauty God's not just going to pass over your sin in that moment. He's actually going to welcome you into his presence as well. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says this. (laughs) 1 Corinthians, for those of you who are new to the church, is in the New Testament. The story that we're studying is in the Old Testament. And so it makes this verse very precious to us as we connect the dots between the two. You see it says, cleanse out the old leaven. Sound familiar? that you may be a new lump of dough as you really are unleavened for Christ. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for you. Do you get it? Blood, the judgment is coming again, but the blood has already been shed. Judgment is coming again, but the blood has already been shed Listen, if God received Hebrews chapter 9, think about how you've read this before, perhaps. The blood, if God received that sacrifice back then, how much more, verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 9, how much more will the bloodshed of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God? He's our Passover lamb. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. And so the question this morning is this. We've already read of the account of what occurred. This is the memorial that we're studying. The people died. The firstborn died. The firstborn mourned. The people who were left, they all mourned. And so the question is this. The blood has already been shed. Will we go the way of Pharaoh and suffer? Or will we receive the sprinkling of Christ's atoning blood? upon our lives 1 Peter 1-2 according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood may grace and peace be multiplied to you When you study the Passover, you can't read the New Testament without seeing it over and over and over and over and over again. The Lord forgiving our sins is reason for memorial. The day the Lord's blood was sprinkled over our souls is a memorial unto us. And so verse 14, he continues on. That day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord, because otherwise you would have been gone. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is unleavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. God was really big on this. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. Let the whole nation gather together. We're going to start Passover all together. We're going to remember all together. And on the seventh day, another holy assembly. We're going to start all together. We're going to end all together. But listen, in between, no work shall be done on those days. But whatever anyone needs to eat, that alone they may prepare. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day I brought you you and your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In this first month, from the 14th day of the month at the evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your homes. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Now watch, here it comes. Moses goes to, the, he goes to the elders now. And Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select the lambs for yourselves according to your clans. Kill the Passover lamb and take a bunch of the hyssop and dip it in blood that is in the basin and touch, and touch the lentil. Spread the blood on the two bo- doorposts. With the blood that is in the basin, none of you shall go out of that door once the blood has been shed. you got to remain under the covering of the blood. Remain in the house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And then when he sees the blood on the lentil and on your two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land, and the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. Now watch verse 26 it is and when your children say to you why do we take the lamb for sacrifice why do we got to give the best one why are you going to sprinkle the blood on the doorpost again dad You shall say to them, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. Whose Passover is it? It's the Lord's Passover. This is the Lord's work. Some are doing this because God wants you to know that what was done for our forefathers was done for us. God wants you to know that what Daddy believes in is what He wants you to believe in. Because God wants you to know exactly why. And God wants you to know just how precious the sacrifice of a lamb really is. And, And God wants you really to know what it really meant when you hear that Bible story in Sunday school about Jesus dying on a cross. He wants you to know why. He wants you to understand the depths of these things, son. You shall say it's a sacrifice of the Lord in the Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. And when he struck the Egyptians, he spared our houses. He spared our houses why, did, why would God spare our houses? It's not because of any work that we had done, that's for sure. We were whining, sniffling, sin-loathed. Oh, but God offered us a means of propitiation, and our forefathers obeyed. In God's strength, our forefathers obeyed, and God passed over. And you're here today, son, because you're great, 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 great. Come on, say you're great. Obeyed God. Some of you are sitting here today for because of the same. Indeed, all of us are sitting here today because this generation was preserved by the Lord in His work. If you need someone to connect the dots, let them be fully connected. And then watching the people bow their heads in worship. And the people bowed their heads in worship. And the people bowed their heads in worship. And this is what drives us to our knees. And this is what causes us to raise our voices and song. And this is what puts our, see, our, our, our backsides in the seats week after week. This is what causes us to open God's word again and again and again. What is it? It's this unbelievable reality that somebody died in my place, that it was a real death and it was real blood. And think about the severe, Mercy of God in all of this. Oh, how we need to remember the severe mercy of God. That's point two. The bottom line is this God is true. God is true. God is just. God is perfect. God is whole in all of his attributes. God puts none of his attributes aside for any of his judgments or graces. How is that possible? He's God. What I want you to understand is this, is God is eternally consistent with himself. God is eternally consistent with himself. Listen to these passages. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will not fulfill it? Deuteronomy 32.4, think of this, the rock, the rock. His work is perfect. The rock is God. His work is perfect for all the ways of his are just. A God of faithfulness and without sin or iniquity, he is just and he is upright. Psalm 1830, this God, this God, I love this verse. This God, his way is perfect. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe God's way is perfect? Do you? Say amen if you do. All right, so then when you read these next verses, you'll have that foundation laid for yourself because I don't understand these next verses practically. Principally, I can teach you theologically all day long. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Pharaoh's like, Come on, up! Go out from among my people, both of you. And the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said, go! Take your flocks and take your herds, as you have said, and be gone." But listen, as you go, would you please bless me also? Here again, God is consistent with himself. He is perfectly just and fully merciful. He is just to render the judgment, but he is also good to provide the propitiation, the means of propitiation that he may pass over. And you may ask yourself, what is God doing here? He's doing what Abraham says our God does when he looked back upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham said this, Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. God God is good. And so God is doing it again. He's delivered a means of appeasement that he may save the righteous and punish the wicked. Are they righteous in and of themselves? No. They counted the spotless sacrifice he had deposited it into their account. That blood was sprinkled over their doorpost. So God was able to receive that as a deposit of the eternal blood that would one day be shed. <sighs> Abraham said, How far be it from you to do such a sort of thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? How does God do it? By giving his people a means of propitiation. By doing that, his attributes were fully upheld in perfect tension. And friends, the same is true today. The same is true today. Our God is patient. Our God is patient. But listen, the time of ignorance which God had overlooked, Acts 17, there was a day, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Hebrews 9, 27, And just as it was appointed man once for die, after this comes the judgment. A judgment day is coming. Another day is coming when the Lord will indeed pass through. The The Lord will indeed call up, and we will stand before him. And for those whose heart is covered by the blood of Jesus, those who obeyed through the strength of the Holy Spirit, they were able to bend their knee in faith. God will not only pass over them in judgment, he will welcome them into their presence. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place through the blood of Jesus. Which leads us to our third and final point. We find strength in God's propitiation by remembering His strong demands, by remembering His severe mercy, and now this, by remembering the saving work of our merciful God. Why? It seems appropriate to say why. Friends, note this. Without judgment of sin, there would have been no exodus for His people. Without the judgment of sin, Pharaoh's saying no again and again and again and again. I want you to see without the judgment of sin, without justice, there's not mercy. Without penalty applied, there is no grace to be extended. Look at how motivated the Egyptians are in verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. God has their attention, his justice has opened their eyes. for they will say, we shall all be dead if you guys don't get out of here. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." Notice this in verse 37. Look, look, look. Notice how the blood was applied. Notice to whom the blood was applied. Notice the number who responded in the application of this. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses into Succoth. And there was about 600,000 men on foot, which would be equivalent when you add woman and child to over 2 million people. God saved the Jews. God, after, God offered propitiation to the Jews, right? God had his chosen people, right? It all makes sense, right? But look at the next verse. It will blow. It blew my mind. Two million people in total, 600,000 men. But, but who else? Two million Jews, but who else? A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both floods and herds. Do you see it? God's propitiation was offered to the masses. Moses didn't keep it a secret. There were others. There were others who must have participated. There were others who must have entered those homes. There were others to whom the blood was applied. There were others that God passed over for the multitude. God reached the multitude. Even here, you see the the precursor, or even the fulfillment, if you will, of the promise unto Abraham that the nations would be reached. And even in the saving of his prevailing chosen nation, God was still saving the masses. For that's always been his plan. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, 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 everyone. God makes no distinction by race, color, class, or gender any longer as it pertains to saving faith. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is our propitiation. That's the point. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we all have the same condition. Therefore, we all have the same provision. Verse 24, We've all been justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. Verse 25, here it comes again, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And when Jesus died, this is why we say that His blood was shed for sins past. You see now why we say for all sins past. for the sins of our present and for every sin to come. Just as the Lord remembered, look at verse 42 now. 430 years they were in captivity. It was at night. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout all generations as the Lord watched over them they were to watch out for the Lord verse 43 while all were offered the gift of propitiation no one outside of a covenant relationship with God however will receive it that sounds contradictory look at the text though we'll end with this and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron this is the statute of the Passover no foreigner shall eat of it I thought you just said I thought you just said there could be applied keep reading but every slave that is bought may eat of it if you have circumcised him. Circumcision was a sign of what? A covenant with God. It was a sign of covenant. It was a sign of coming in relationship with God. So watch. No foreigner or hired hand or worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall, take any, you shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. Why? Because it is, for the, it is for the one who has repented. It is for the one who has become obedient is the one who's in covenant, the one who's in relationship with God is the one who remembers this. And so all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. But if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all of his males be circumcised. Ah, there it is. You can't eat your cake and have it too. You can't just come participate in the religiosity of the Passover. You actually have to come into a covenant relationship with God. If you want the, the, the blood applied, the sprinkling of the blood applied, then you too must participate in the covenant of the blood shed. hence the circumcision of the Jew. But here's the good news for all of us. The same is true today, but now, now today, while they had a physical circumcision, we now have a spiritual one. The scriptures are clear on this. Romans 2.29, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision now, though, is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter any longer, His praise is not from man, but from God. Friends, our memorial, our memorial, is the redemptive work of Christ. Our memorial is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Christ. He is our Passover lamb. His blood is our propitiation applied once for all. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified by grace as a gift, though the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. And that's to be received by faith. We receive the propitiation of Christ's blood by faith, by believing, by believing. He who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God's Christ's blood covers over your sins. This was to show God's righteousness, the text says, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. You see, why did all of this happen in the past? So at the present time, you would understand what it means. Why did all of this happen? Can you believe the church now being at the center of God's plan? He's saying all of this happened so that now we can look upon the cross of Jesus and know exactly why it had to happen. It was to show his righteousness. Why the plagues? God is righteous. Why judgment over sin? Because God is just. Why the offer of propitiation? Because our God is merciful and he's gracious. Why send Jesus? So that those who would believe would one day gather around the throne and fulfill the promise of Abraham that the nations would gather unto him. to show the righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and the justifier. You see it? He's just and the justifier. It's another way of saying he is just and he's merciful of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so today, so today, we believe that God has made propitiation for us. And so today we find our strength in remembering and remembering and remembering the propitiation of Christ's shed blood. Jesus said this, memorial, remember I'm your Passover lamb. And so he says this, in the same way he took the cup, in the same way he took the cup. And so in the same way he took the cup and said, take, in the same way he passed the bread and he said, take and remember me. The men are going to come and they're going to distribute the elements of communion this morning because I'm not sure how else you end a sermon like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 indeed is the Lord saying to us I am your Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 the Lord says this for I have received from the Lord but I also delivered to you that on the night that I was betrayed Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you communion is a time of invitation. It's an invitation to remember the propitiation that Jesus delivered unto the Father on your behalf. It's an invitation, and it's a time of contemplation, and for those who have, by faith, trusted in Christ, this is for you. For in the same way that it said you need to be in covenant relationship with God to take of the Passover, we would then also say this, This remembrance is for those who have a first-person relational testimony of having received God's shed blood for you. So if you're not prepared to take, if you're not sure, you can let the elements pass by for sure. But in this moment, how many times have you heard this? To the one who responded by faith, to the one who responded by faith. You can respond by faith right now. You can thank the Lord for sending Jesus to die in your place. You can confess your sins and say, I know that I was worthy of that death, but I'm glad, Lord God, you provided propitiation for me. God will hear that prayer and he will make you a new creation and he will gladly, 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 the scriptures tell us, forgive your sins, make you new. When you realize cup that you're holding is a memorial, a symbol that the strong demands of a holy God have been met. You holding that cup will remind you that a severe mercy, a severe act of mercy was done on your behalf that Jesus died and not you for your sins. As you hold that cup, you'll be reminded that this is the memorial of God's saving work. As you hold this cup, you will be reminded this is the blood that was shed. And so the scripture says, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do proclaim and remember the Lord's death until Take a moment where you are as Cynthia plays through this, one time through, and then we will stand in response and sing our worship back.